He is worthy. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our honor. He is worthy of our lives. We sang earlier, it is done. It is finished. All sufficient merit. Christ paid the penalty for our sin that we might know him. Our series is on how to make disciples or understanding the assignment. What are we called to do? It is not sufficient to recognize that we've been saved by grace and that we have a relationship with God and then check, that's done, and we're done completely. And we could just go to heaven at that point. But there is a task to accomplish. There is a, a, an expression of Christ's life in us that he lives through us as his children. It's defined in the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. It is bearing witness to Christ, as uh, Jesus told the disciples right before he ascended to the throne. The work which I've begun, you will continue. After the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I will tell you one of the things. It, occasionally we, we get questions and people will ask, you know, what are you, what are you most afraid of or what irritates you the most or what's the thing you have the biggest problem with? And for a lot of, for me personally, uh, I, I went through a personality assessment and they said, what's your biggest fear? And I said, incompetence. Does anybody else fear incompetence? Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Okay. Uh, the fear of failure, the fear of not being able to accomplish something, the fear of not being able to do what we're called to do. Can I, can I welcome you to a great and glorious truth? We are incompetent. We are not dependent upon the flesh to save us. It's not simply a decision that we make. It's not simply a prayer that we pray. It is when the Holy Spirit wakes us up, draws us to Christ, and births us, births us into his family. We do decide. We yield. We commit. We surrender, enabled by the God working in our life, and he makes us into a new creation. And so many of us who are disciples can say, Christ is enough for me. He is all I need. I'm following Jesus. No turning back. I place no confidence in the flesh. I fully rely on Christ. I'm living now in fellowship with Him, and every day with Jesus is being sweeter than the day before. And that was last week. First, be a disciple. First, be a disciple. And as you're a disciple, you're being transformed and changed. Like Jesus taught his disciples in Luke chapter 6, a disciple is not above his teachers, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. It's a transformation that takes place in our lives as we follow Christ. It's what, what Paul described in the book of Romans when he said that we've been saved. We have been chosen by God. We've been made new, and now we are being conformed to the image of his son. We're being changed. We have been born. We have been changed. And then it's a process. But the truth that we have in too many places is we think that Christian maturity is simply me getting better at praying, me getting better at reading the Bible, me focusing upon myself. The Christ, typical Christian thinks that he really lives or he's living a good life as a Christian if he prays enough, reads his Bible enough, shows enough faithfulness, goes to church on a regular basis, maybe even says, I'm committed hard to following after Christ. But Paul's focus is clear. What Zion read just a minute ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, we were ready to share with you the gospel. We came after being persecuted. We were ready to share the gospel, but he didn't stop there. He says, we were also willing and ready and energetic to share ourselves. You see, first you're a disciple, but you need to get this truth as a foundation of truth. A disciple who is following after Christ 
is, by definition, making disciples. Did you hear that? A disciple who is following after Christ is designed, is intended, is commanded, is equipped, following Christ's example, being conformed to the image of Christ, is one who makes disciples. And the first step to that is to get into relationships. Throughout this chapter and throughout this book, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church, you see his love for these people. Paul loved these people. At the end of the chapter, the last couple of verses, what is our hope and our joy, the crown of our boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? What are we going to be proud of when we stand before Jesus? It's you. It's you. Not me, not my works, not my scripture memory, not my good behavior, not my keeping of the law. What I'm proud of, Paul says, is you. That you are standing firm in the faith. You're my joy. You're my glory. And even in chapter 3, the next chapter, he tells him, I wanted to come to you. The devil prevented me. I really want to come. And I'm glad to see that you're standing fast. I waited. Timothy came and he gave me this good news, how you weren't mad at me, how that you still had good thoughts about me, but mostly how you were standing firm in the Lord. And he says this in chapter 3, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. See, his life wasn't wrapped up in the emphasis of the world today. The world today, even in many evangelical circles, says Christianity is all about you. You need wealth, come to the Lord. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You need health, he is the physician, the great healer. As a matter of fact, it's really all about you. The focus upon what God can do for you and what God provides for you. There's even an emphasis in self-care. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of yourself. You should steward your body. Amen? It's not your own. You've been bought with a price. You with me there? You should steward your body. You should take care of your body. You ought to eat right. You ought to exercise. You ought to sleep. But not as an end in itself. Not as the end goal. As a means of being a tool fit for the master's service. Paul's turned his back on the self-focused consumer catering church. He has deliberately chosen to see his Christian maturity in terms not of his own growth and a period, but of his own growth as it expressed in the lives of others and their ministries, not simply his own. We live, he says, if you stand fast. So to be a disciple, you must be committed to making disciples. We see it from the very beginning. I'm going to start a sentence, you finish it. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He did not say, follow me and I'll make you wealthy. He did not say, follow me and I'll make you healthy. He did not even say, follow me and I'll make you wise. He didn't say, follow me and I'll make you famous. He didn't say, follow me and I, and, and, and I will give you anything. What he said was, through you to others. Follow me and I will make you fishers, actively engaged, of men, of others. As we follow Christ, the attention of our life turns increasingly away from ourselves to others. The focus becomes on giving, not on getting. On serving, not on selfishness. On developing others, not on self-promotion or self-aggrandizement or even self-protection. Too often we misunderstand the assignment to simply be a self-improvement exercise. And again, you ought to be healthy, you ought to be wise, you ought to be good stewards of the resources that God's entrusted to you. I'm not saying that you're foolish. I'm saying that all of that is not the end goal. The end goal is the glory of God in the making of disciples. Amen?
Some of you may be new to this congregation. We have a purpose statement that I'm confident every member of this church can give you from start to finish. Isn't that right, guys? Together, we exist to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations starting in the West End. Can we do that together? Together, we exist to glorify God by making mature disciples of all nations starting here in the West End. You see, the reason that we write that down, the reason that we repeat it, the reason that we want this in our very DNA, we don't simply want to receive. We want to receive in order that we may pass it on. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, listen to the heart of Paul. I'm going to give you several, several uh, statements that are made throughout the New Testament. Paul says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. In the second letter to Corinth, he says, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. He says, I'm preaching. My whole ministry is all for your benefit, for your uplifting, beloved. And then he goes on to, in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, I'm glad when I'm weak and you're strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. In Colossians, Paul describing his ministry to the church at Colossae. By the way, these books are letters he sent to churches that he planted and helped get started. And he's reminding them of what his work was, what his mission was. And he says, Christ is who we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? So that I can say, look what a job I did? No, but so that I can present everyone else. Perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, his exhortation to the church at Philippi, the one that he just got kicked out of in our context today historically, is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant, more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So a true New Testament Christian, a disciple who's walking after Christ, is one who advances another person in their walk with Christ. Pretty simple, right? Sunday School 101, we can check that off the list. We've got it. But here's the question I have for you. Who can you point to and say, that's someone who's closer to God because of the time I've spent with them? That's someone who knows more about how to read and understand the Word of God because of the time I've spent with them. That's someone who can pray and enter the throne room of Christ because of the times that we've prayed together. That's a person that I know serves and gives selflessly because they've seen it in me. And they're imitating or they're emulating or they're modeling or they're following after. And they're closer to Christ because of the time we spent together. And so what I want us to do this morning, I want to give you some very simple steps. None of this is rocket science. It is throughout Scripture. But I want to give you some very simple steps that we see in Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians, but you also see it with Epaphras, and you also see it in Philippians. You see it with Timothy. You see it with Titus, not only in his letter to Titus, but in the record that we have in Acts. You see over and over again, Paul investing his life in crowds, but also in a much smaller context with a few people at a time where he's pouring his life into them so that they become fully developed, fully devoted, fully grown followers of Christ. 
And so here are some simple steps for us in how to make disciples. You ready to take notes? All right. First is, I will make disciples by setting the example. Setting the example. You may want to call it modeling. I will make disciples by being examples that people can emulate. What again, I told you this before, I'll tell you again, what I love, one of the things I love about 1 Thessalonians in this letter is in this very short book, five chapters, there are 11 times he says, you know, you remember, you were witnesses. I was there with you. I worked night and day. I didn't want to make you have to pay my salary or provide for my needs. I wanted to provide for my own needs as a model for you. You remember what we said. You remember how we got there. You remember how we lived and how we worked in faithfulness and righteousness. We were examples to you. And this is really last week's sermon, so you may want to go catch up if you, if you missed it. But as you are following after Christ, as you are walking after Christ, then others can see that and emulate it. And it requires intentional, relational contact, face-to-face time, conversational time. You may influence a person at a distance and maybe even influence him deeply, but you will only lastingly impact his life by spending quality time with him in person, face-to-face. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? Because we don't really like people that much, do we? There's an internet meme. It's a little kid who makes his name. He walks into a room and goes, oh, people. And he turns around and walks back out. And a lot of us are like that in our lives. I mean, there are people that we work with, and we're good with those guys because, you know, they're, they're, we just, they're workmates. We're just kind of there with them. We know enough about them, but we can draw the line. I can always close the door to the office or focus on the desk. All right. And then there's family. Of course, you can't escape family. They're just there. You eat together. You share time together. But sometimes, you know, you need a break. And then we feel like, all right, I'm around people here and I'm around people there. And now I just want to kind of draw in and close up and separate. And I'm not saying that you don't need times of solitude. How many of you are introverts? Just some indicate. Look at that. Like attracts like. So am I. And when it comes to being an introvert, an introvert is someone who gains strength from solitude. I'm amazed how many of you, do that again, just so I can get some sense of it. Wow. An introvert is someone who gains strength and refreshes and recalibrates from solitude. Do you like being alone? How many of you read or listen to music? Look at this. Oh, man. I got to tell you, you know, one of my biggest challenges as a pastor is I have a study right back over there that I can close the door and I can put down the blinds and I can open my books. And what happens when somebody knocks on the door? Let's just say my initial response is not joy. And I have to learn and continually have to learn and have had to learn that, Lord, the knock on the door is why you've placed me here. The knock on the door is not an interruption. The knock on the door is an invitation to ministry, to connect, to care, to talk, to communicate. 
And in a world where we get our social context through scrolling through reels or looking down Facebook or following along on Instagram, in a, in a world where we can isolate ourselves and still have some sense of social contact, I'm going to tell you, listen to me, I love you. If you aren't spending time with somebody face-to-face, living the life that God has put in you, transformed so that they can observe it and so that you can share life with them, you are not making disciples. Not to the extent that God calls us to. And you say, well, wait a minute, I'm in a class. The class makes disciples. Isn't that what's necessary? Spurgeon described it like this. He said, imagine, young preachers, that you are to feel all the, every person out there is like a small bottle, and you are to feel every one of those bottles. And the pulpit's like having a bucket full and throwing it out, trying to fill every one of those bottles. Compare that to sitting down one person at a time and being able to fill that bottle. Which is the most efficient, effective? Which is the way that actually fills the bottle that makes a disciple? So I'm going to encourage you. You've got to spend time together. People can't imitate you if they don't see you. You can't be the example if you're not observed. How many times does Paul say, imitate me? 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, you became imitators of us. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because, and here's a practical example, he says, when we were there, we worked hard. There's your example for you to follow. Hebrews 6.12, I'm writing these things to you that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Philippians 3.17, brothers join in imitating me. 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, to give you in ourselves an example that you may imitate. Do you, do you guys see it over and over again? Paul says, I'm here in you, in your crowd, in your midst. I'm living among you in order to be an example for you. Can I give you a, just another experience, personal experience of my own? Uh, years ago, before I married Suzanne, so it was a long time ago, I went on a mission trip to Puerto Rico. And I was working with a man named Bob Bell. Bob Bell was the missionary in Puerto Rico, and we were working with deaf people on the island there. And again, I'm young, uh, no knowledge of anything. First time I'd ever been there. Uh, And uh, I flew out of New Orleans and went to uh, Puerto Rico, flew into uh, San Juan there at the airport. And he had told me, I'm going to come by and pick you up. And so I got my bags and I went and went to the pickup area and I waited and I didn't know who he was. And so he was going to have to find me. I told him what to look for. And so I'm sitting there and people come and for the first hour, two hours, I'm looking at pretty much every face. And I'm thinking, well, maybe he's just walking past me. So I'll just sing in sign language because, you know, that'll, he'll spot me then. And three hours passed and then four hours passed and then five hours passed and then six hours passed and the sun was setting, and we were in San Juan, Puerto Rico, a place I'd never been before. People spoke Spanish there. I don't speak Spanish very well. And there we were. And then about eight hours after I arrived, this van comes squealing up to the curb. And this guy jumps out, and he looks a little bit harried. And he says, are you Marty? And I said, yes, I am. He says, I'm Bob. Get in the van. And I go get in the van, I say, I, I don't know if you got the message, but, you know, I've been here eight hours. And he said, yeah, and I was on the way, 
But man, somebody called and I went over here and did this and then I found out from them that this other person was in trouble and I went over there and I had to address that and that was all the way in Arecibo and it just takes a while to get here from Arecibo and so I knew you were here, I figured you'd still be here when I got here. And I'm looking at him thinking, buddy, I thought we communicated well. We had some expectations. Well, then he puts me in the van and he drives me up to Kawas, up a mountainside. We pull into a family's driveway, and he says, this family have an adult son who is deaf. His name is Nelson, and uh, he's going to be your point of contact for the week. I hope they let you stay here all week long. <laughs> we got out of the van, walked up to the door. Bob knocked on the door. They came very nice people, wonderful. They knew him. They knew Nelson. And Bob said, this guy's here. He's going to do Bible studies in your area all week. I'm going to give him a van. I need you to house him and feed him. And can he use your garage for a worship center? And he needs a place to stay tonight. And, of course, they were like, sure, that'd be great. Come on in. And they, it was a wonderful week. But we got there that night, both at the beginning of the trip and at the end of the trip. And Bob said, I want us to pray. I want us to pray for your experience. I want us to pray for God to be effective and to work. I want us to pray for Nelson and his family, but I want us to pray for the deaf in this area, that God will use you for his glory. And I said, that's great, man, let's pray. And so we went back in the little bedroom they had reserved for me to kick three kids out so that I could stay in the bedroom. That's a whole other story. I'll tell you about that at some time. And we knelt by the bed, and Bob said, you pray first. And so I just prayed. And I said, Lord, thank you. Thanks for getting me here safely. Thanks. You know, I, I prayed what I would call a typical prayer. I pray that you'll work through me, you work through them. And then I said, in your name I pray, amen. And I thought Bob would pray the same sort of prayer. And for a while there was just silence. And then Bob began to pray, and he began to pray praises. And he began to quote scripture and whole psalms and ascribe glory to God. And to remind us of who we were talking to. And then he began to pray for people, and he called people by name. And it wasn't, Lord, bless Nelson, but it was, Father, thank you that you drew Nelson, that you saved him, that you gave him new life. Thank you that you live within him, but now he needs to be taught and he needs to be trained. And he began to pray. And very few times in my life have I been in the company of someone who prayed like he prayed. And honestly, my first thought was, we're going to be here all night. But by about the 45 minutes or an hour into it, my second thought was, I hope we stay here all night. You see, you can teach a class on prayer. Somebody needs to hear you pray. So you model what it means to be a believer, to be transformed. Discipleship is often, it is said, caught, not taught, taught. And so you need to be there so people can catch it. But can I tell you something? You also need to teach. 
you need to instruct. The first thing is by setting the example, but the second thing is by searching the Scriptures. Paul didn't come and say, this is my best idea. Paul didn't come and say, well, you know, I think. Paul came with the gospel that has been revealed by him. Paul came with a whole doctrine, a whole theology. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 13, We thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, my word to you, listen to this, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul had the Old Testament, and you know he opened the scriptures to them. But Paul also was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and he was speaking the word of God. And so when you begin to teach and you begin to spend some time with someone, you're going to find that they're going to ask you questions you don't know. What do you do when somebody asks you a question or comes up with a problem or a situation you're not familiar with and you don't know what to do? Do you just pretend? Do you come up with something? No. You look to the Word of God. You say, I don't know. Let's learn this together. What are the scriptures that apply to this? What about this circumstance that is similar? What is the truth, the eternal truth that never changes? We've got to know, thus saith the Lord. Discipleship happens in relationships where you're talking to each other and looking at each other when you're living life together and you set the example. And then when things come up or as a pattern of life, you search the scriptures and you teach the word of God. Let me give you another example here. Wow. Let me give you another example here. Um, Paul and Luke combined wrote almost all of the New Testament. Did you know that? Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And as far as the number of words, he wrote more words of the New Testament than anybody else. Where did he learn? Where did he get his information? He was a doctor, but he was also a historian. And he researched these things for a man named Theophilus that he was writing to. Where did he learn? We first come across Luke in history, in the chronological account, in Acts chapter 16, where the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey. He wanted to go to Bithynia. The Holy Spirit prevented them. He was at Troas. He looks out, and here's the Macedonian call. And Luke, from that point, changes his pronouns from they did this, they did that, they did this. Now it's we, and we went to Macedonia. And all of a sudden, we have this doctor following along with the Apostle Paul. Luke joined Paul in Troas in Asia Minor, Acts 16. Luke was left in Philippi during the second missionary journey. Luke accompanied Paul on his journey to Jerusalem in Rome and was with him during his imprisonment there. Paul refers to Luke as a fellow laborer. Luke was a close friend of Paul's who referred to him as a beloved physician. Luke was a doctor. Paul had physical problems. And I don't know that this is true, but would you give me a little sanctified imagination, a little freedom here? Luke's a doctor. And as they're traveling, as they're working side by side, or as they're sitting by the campground, Paul is unrolling the scriptures to him, and he's explaining truth to him, and Luke is soaking it up. Meanwhile, Luke is explaining the physical body to Paul. Luke's a doctor. He's treating Paul. What is Paul's most often used analogy of the church in the New Testament? The body. And how the body functions. Discipleship, you will find as you spend time and as you search the scriptures, is never a one-way street. It is always give and take. It is always back and forth. And by the way, it's not enough that you simply teach the words of God. You need to disciple people on how to study the word of God. How do you read scripture? 
You guys ever read the Bible and got to the end of the chapter and you scratch your head and you thought, I, I didn't get any of that. You ever been there? Don't lie. You need to sit down with someone and you need to say, look, you need to understand the context. Here's what's happening in history. And as you read it, here's something you can look for. What did they hear and what did they understand? What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about us? What are the eternal principles? What did it mean for them and what does it mean for us? And you walk through the process of searching the scriptures and how to read the Bible so that you are equipping people. And now we come to really the point. By the way, y'all won't be mad if we only make it through the first three of our five points today, will you? Yeah, the first three. We, let's go to the third one. Another way that you make disciples is by serving together. Because when you search the scriptures, you know what you're going to find? You serve together. You serve together. What you learn, you put into practice. Galatians 5, 13 through 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you are set free in order to serve. How about that? You're set free in order to serve. The Son of Man, Jesus, describes himself as not one who came to be served, but to serve and give himself as a, a ransom for many. In the instructions to the church that we have that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, he tells them, listen, God's given you gift and gifted people. But not so you can just sit there and say, feed me, take care of me. But so that you can join arms together, so that you can be equipped to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. There is service and service to one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes it abundantly clear that there are varieties of gifts and abilities. One spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. Now I'm going to not preach these, but I am going to tell you what the rest of this outline is. Because when you begin to serve, you're going to find that people will stumble and fall and people will rebel. And so we need to support one another. That's what Paul says when he says, I was continually among you encouraging and admonished you. Verse 12, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And then, of course, the fifth point is that when you make a disciple, you send that disciple out to make another disciple. You train, you train someone else, and I'll train someone. Do you see the picture here? I'm with you. I'm modeling. I'm with you. I'm speaking God's word, truth, into your life. Together we serve, and what we learn we put into practice. And I'm going to need encouragement and correction. You're going to need encouragement and correction. So we encourage and correct and hold each other accountable. And then once you demonstrate the power of God working in you, go find somebody else and invest in them the same way that I invested in you. Now, for us, guys, this is right where we live. By the way, this is about half of this sermon. I may finish it next week, all right? But this is right where we live. It's right where we live. You say, how can I make a disciple in this context? We have classes for that. We've got a Sunday school class right there and a Sunday school class right there. We've got classes back there. Well, can I encourage you to do something? Call up a member of your class this week and say, why don't we go get a cup of coffee and talk about what we studied this week? What did you learn? What was significant to you? What was meaningful to you? 
What, what is the truth that we need to hold on to? How can we encourage one another in this? And so you can connect in a small group, but I'm going to ask, who's your one person that you can commit three months to six months and say, this person I'm choosing to invest my life in intentionally so that they follow hard after Christ. Can you do that? One way that you find those people is to serve alongside of them. We're called to service. Every Christian serves. And so what we do here in this church is we have ministry teams that we connect people with service. And you see them. You see them all over the place. You should be... There's people out there working in the parking lot. There's people at the door when you come in. There's people who are preparing food. There are people who have been preparing lessons and studying and praying for your children and taking care of your babies and instructing your children. There are people who are teaching youth. There are people who are teaching adults. There are people who are doing everything from cleaning the floors to leading and singing and counseling the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God. And if you're a believer, you have a place of service. That's why it's important for you to find a church that's your church. A church where you can connect. A church where you can be faithful and consistent. And then, who do you make a disciple of? You make a disciple of somebody that's serving alongside of you. You invest your life into that person. You pray for them. You encourage them. You keep in touch with them with the goal that we glorify God by making mature disciples by, by living life together with the desired outcome, being conformed to the image of Christ. Does that make sense? All right. So here's our calling. Here's our goal. To make disciples by setting an example, by knowing and teaching and searching the scriptures and applying them to our lives, which results in our serving. And as we serve in our support and encouragement and admonition of one another, so that more and more and more. This is how Jesus impacted the whole world through 12 men. Amen. We just got the West and of Greenville and where we live. We just got the upstate. We can do this by the power of God, not confidence in the flesh, but by relying upon Christ day by day, minute by minute. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I want to thank you for the privilege that we have to be yours. I thank you that you're sufficient, that... You are enough, that you are all that we need. I thank you that through the blood of, the, of Christ, you have forgiven us and paid the penalty for our sin. You have raised us to walk in newness of life. We come to you in repentance and faith. You wash us, you cleanse us, you make us new. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us a task, not simply to be recipients, but to be channels. Not simply to receive, but to invest our lives in other people. So, Father... I pray that you'll help us to improve, to get better at, to identify who we can intentionally invest our lives in for a period of time to speak truth to them, to model before them, to, to, to care for their spiritual well-being, to be a source of support and encouragement. Father, don't ever let us live in isolation. It's too easy to stay in the office. Too easy, way too easy. I pray that you'll do whatever's necessary to move us into the strong kind of relationships that you intend that we have for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.